Welcome to the teaching ministry of Temple Baptist Church. While we hope you can join us in person, our prayer is that this message will encourage you to love God and serve Him in a deeper way. Well, good morning, everyone. It really is great to see you, and thank you again for being here. And for all those who may be visiting with us, maybe you're a first-time guest, we offer you a special welcome. And uh, we just don't take it for granted uh, when guests come uh, and visit with us. And we just want to say thank you so much for sharing uh, part of your weekend with us here at Temple. My name is Donald. Um, Yes, this is a horse. And... um, Last week, someone was brazen enough to say that I was going to give announcements on a horse with a Scottish accent and a uniform. So one of our elders, knowing that I didn't have a horse, went and got a horse for me. And um, I don't can you hear this? Can, Can you hear that? Anyway, so I worked really, really hard. And I just could, all I could do was Lottie and Lassies. So that's all I could do. So anyway, I have a horse. One day I may ride it and bring it in. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we began this journey. Um, we started a brand new series. We're studying a man's life who dominated uh, Jewish history. Uh, in fact, if you read the Bible, other than the name Jesus, his name dominates the pages of the Bible, his name is David, and for centuries, millions of people have been intrigued by his life. And you know, when you think about it, uh, there's been a lot of great uh, people that have lived throughout history, but there's something about David throughout the millenniums that people have been intrigued um, with his life. Maybe, maybe just maybe, it's because people love to root for the underdog. You know, farm boy is elected king of the nation. Rent of the family wins it all. There's something about rooting for the underdog. And one of the things that we have discovered, it is very easy to relate to David, not because he's a king, but because he lives a life that is is like a roller coaster ride. He has highs and he has lows. He has those mountaintop experiences and boy, he sinks really, really low at times. Can you identify? Can you connect with that? Sound familiar maybe in your life? Long before he became king, long before he was given that title, there were things that were happening in his life that would shape him to be the man that he would become. And I think that is why it's really so easy to identify with him. And we don't only know the good things But honestly, we get to see some of the dark side of David as well. This man is far from perfect, and yet God himself gives him the title that says he's a man after God's own heart. It's just, it's amazing to think about that. And actually, that gives me hope when I think about it. With all of David's ups and downs, with all of his victories and his failures, with his righteous living and his sinful decisions, he's still called by God a man after his own heart. If a man like that can have that kind of label, maybe, just maybe, we could have that kind of label. Well, let's do a quick review. In week number one, we discovered that God doesn't just look at the outward appearance. 
You know, we can, we can polish ourselves up so we shine and glisten and sparkle and it really looks good to everybody else and to the world, but God, we discover, looks far deeper into the hearts of men and women. Even the old prophet Samuel had to be reminded by God, hey, I don't look just at the outward. Even Samuel, who all of his life, since a little boy had been serving God, was still, at times would still get starstruck by what stood uh, in front of him. If we remember the story of when Jesse, his seven oldest sons, marched in front of Samuel and, and each one was better than the other. And, and Samuel looked at those men and said, surely one of these has got to be a king. They look the part, look at them, their outward appearance. And God actually says, Samuel, no, I'm, I'm not interested in those. Remember Samuel, I look far beyond the outward. Sammy, I know these things impress you, but I look down deep into the core of men and women. And these seven sons, they look all really good, but there's something about David whose heart is in line with me. And that was in week one. And then week two, of course, we looked at that legendary story. I mean, whether you've been in a church, you have never darkened the doors of a church. You know this story. It's the story of David and Goliath. And we looked at what do you do when there's a giant breathing down your neck? And we, we learned some principles from that uh, particular story. And one of the things is that we discovered that when you're facing a giant, one of the first things that David does is that David actually brings God into the conversation. He immediately has to remind the nation about their God, the God they serve. And then number two, David doesn't look at how big the giant is. He actually looks how big his God is. And the giant, compared to God, is like an ant ready to be squished. <laughs> and then we also notice thirdly that David was the first one that was on the offensive. He didn't wait till his enemy got all prepared. No, he made the first strike. And if we are ever going to be able to bring some of the giants down in our lives that we face, it's gonna be important that we bring God into the conversation. It's important that we recognize how big our God is compared to the giant that stands before us. No matter how outmatched you are, even a toy poodle can take on a pit bull when God's in the picture. Now, uh, we walked away last week saying those are great principles that you can learn to maybe how to handle a giant when they come their way. But that, we certainly said, that is not the main point of that story, of the story of David and Goliath. The main point of that story was to paint a picture of what Christ had done for us. In fact, I am convinced that every story in every book of the Bible points us to Jesus. It's a paints this incredible picture for us. And there's David who stands in the gap. No one would fight, no one would fight the giant Goliath. And yet, when he brought the giant down, his victory gets credit to the rest of the nation. David puts his life on the line and takes down a giant. And we said last week, each one of us face a giant of sin that no one could tackle, no one could bring that giant down. But one day, out of nowhere, Jesus stood in the gap. 
He took our place and his victory is credit to us. We get to enjoy the spoils of his victory. The forgiveness of sin. Crazy, crazy to think that while we were still enemies of God, God would go ahead and send someone who would die for us. Makes absolutely no sense. That's why I say oftentimes that the gospel makes no sense at all. I mean, we are just conditional people living in a world that is based on conditional love. But boy, that's not what took place on the day that Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and took our place. He killed our giant solely because he loved us with no strings attached. That would have been a great place for an amen, by the way. I'll, I'll move on. I'm gonna teach you folks one of these days. Good places to do that. Okay, thank you. So now, wouldn't you think, let's be honest, wouldn't you think after David has just taken down a giant, after the nation now has just experienced an incredible victory, wouldn't you expect that David is going to ride the wave and be able to come home and enjoy the good life? Wouldn't you expect he's going to be the national hero? Wouldn't you expect that he would have the penthouse of Trump Towers? Wouldn't you expect that he would be given the key to the city? Wouldn't you expect there to be a ticket uh, tape parade as he enters into the city doors? Shouldn't he become the mayor of the city? Shouldn't he become the patron saint when he gets home? A life of ease, you would think, would be waiting for a man who rescues a nation. And you know what? He did actually get a few accolades, but they were short-lived. They were on their way home and um, from the victory. In fact, if you have your Bibles, and if you don't, I think it will also be on the screen, but it's actually found in 1 Samuel. That's the book that we have been looking at in, um, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and 19 is what we'll be looking at. But just picture this. Now, uh, the Philistines have uh, taken off running. They're scared to death. There's this great victory. Perhaps they've even taken David and put him on the shoulders. Maybe even his brothers who were fighting in the battle put him on their shoulders. Hey, that's, that's my brother. That's my brother. Maybe they're singing for he's the jolly good fellow. And, and, and news has already reached home that... Um, that the battle has been won. News has already reached back home that David has brought down a giant. And so we're told that when they're entering the city, as they're coming back home, because the news had already spread faster than their arrival, songs were being written about them. Songs were being written. And, and immediately, right to the number one chart, billboard charts, was that song that says, I like David more than I like Saul. Only to be followed up with a song, David is stronger than Saul. Followed up with another song, David is more handsome than Saul. In fact, we have the, uh, the lyrics to the words. Look at um, uh, chapter 18, verse six. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, here are the lyrics, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. 
and it becomes a number one hit in the town. It seems like the tune has caught on and everybody's singing. They're singing it when they're walking down the street. They're singing it when they're at their water cooler at work. It's on the radio when they're at the gym working out. It's everywhere. You turn your radio on and there it is, that song being played again. And it gets stuck in your head. I don't know how many people have ever been to Disney World and you've been to that exhibit, that ride, it's a small world after all and they sing it a thousand times in 500 languages. And you walk out and you can't get it out of your head. It's a small world after all. And, and all day, well that's exactly the kind of song that's being sung here all day. They're singing it everywhere they go. People can hear this song being sung. And if Saul is any kind of a man who struggles with insecurity, this could be a problem. It could be a problem. In fact, in verse eight, it says Saul was very angry. His refrain, uh, this refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul has suspicious eyes. Maybe his song, his big song that he was singing for, for Saul was Elvis' song, Suspicious Minds. You know that song? We can't go on together with suspicious minds. You know that song? Right? We can't build our dreams with suspicious minds. I think that's what Saul was singing every because he was always on the look. He never took his eyes off David because what more could he want? All that is left is the kingdom. So David, at one of the biggest mountaintop experiences of his life, is gonna fall deep, deep into a pit of despair. This is the roller coaster ride of life that we talked about last week. Hold on to your hats because he's gonna go down, he's gonna go down fast, those tracks. At 100 miles an hour, he's coming down. And honestly, I think we all can relate to that. I mean, how many of us have had these tremendous highs in our life, and with a blink of an eye, we get hit on the side of the head with a two by four? You know, we get this big promotion at work. Our career is going so well and we come home one day and our spouse hands us divorce papers. Like what? You've been riding this wave and that happens. Or maybe, maybe your first child is born and it's a baby girl and all your life you've been hoping for a baby girl. And you're just living in the moment I'm a dad, I'm a mom. Then the doctor comes in and says, we have concerns. Your little girl has a very severe infection. Yet we know what it is to ride those emotional roller coasters. We know what it is to swing from one side of the emotion to the other side of our emotion. And there's David, he's been on this mountaintop experience and now he's way over here. Because the man he saved is out to kill him. 
They come home to a hero's welcome. It says in verse 10, as Saul is, by the way, keeping his eyes on David. Okay? Look what happens, it says here in verse 10. The next day. Not the next month. Not the next year. It says the next day. Talking about an emotional roller coaster. I mean, you've just come into the city. People have written songs about you. Everybody's celebrating. And the next day. It says the next day. Saul was out to get David. 24 hours later, there's an attempt on David's life. Let's read it. It says, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. The next day, Saul tried to kill David twice. What? David stepped in when Saul should have been the one fighting the battle against Goliath. The Bible said he was the tallest man. He was head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. He should have been the one fighting Goliath. David, this young teenage boy, steps in, takes his place, saves his kingdom. And now, 24 hours later, he's trying to take out David. I'm sure David's got to be thinking, that's the kind of thanks I get for what I did. You almost pinned me to the wall. Hello? I should be having five stars up on my shoulder straps. I should be your secretary of defense. What are you doing trying to kill me? And you continue to read and you realize that Saul removes David from his presence. Now, one of the things you will discover is that actually Saul does, even though he's removed David from his presence, he's given David a job. He's put him in the military. Again, he's a 15, 16, maybe 17 years old. But a lot of scholars say 15, 16 years old. And Saul has placed him in the military and he's made him a commander over some people in the army. He's young, he's inexperienced, he's not a trained military soldier. But the thing is, even at a young age, he does such an incredible job that he earns the respect of Saul's servants and the troops that followed him, which made it even worse for Saul. Now the people see him all the time and they're seeing how God is immensely prospering. Can I remind you that what is ever inside of a man or a woman will eventually make its way out. We look at Saul. He looked strong and powerful. The Bible says he was even handsome. And from the outside, it looked really, really good. But boy, something inside was burning away at him. And I'm telling you, what's inside of a man or woman will eventually make its way out. I preached my very first sermon when I was 11 years old. 
And I still remember the illustration. I said, I had an orange in my hand. And I said to those in the room, I said, if I was to squeeze this orange, what would come out? And of course, everyone yells, well, orange juice. I went, no. I said, ink. They're like, ink? What are you talking about? I said, because I filled it with ink. So when I put the pressure on that orange, that's what's going to come out. Then I pulled out another orange and I said, now if I squeeze, squeeze this orange, what would come out? And people were a little hesitant. Uh, orange juice? Some said, ink? I said, no, molasses. I said, because I, I have filled the orange with molasses and when I squeeze it, that's what's going to come out. And the point is, eventually, your private life will go public when the pressure is on. It may, lay, may look really good on the outside, but when the pressure begins to mound, what is inside of a man or woman will make its way out. And oftentimes it gets revealed at the most inappropriate of times. And Saul has this stronghold in his life. It was called jealousy. And some of us here this morning may have strongholds in our life. And if we don't starve that stronghold, it will devour us. Maybe for some of you, the stronghold is anger. You know, you're just always at the tipping point, always at the boiling point, always ready like a volcano to spew out lava all over and leave a path of destruction behind you. I've seen it over and over again. People who have this anger problem inside. If you don't get a hold of those strongholds, they will destroy you. And Saul had a problem, and instead of addressing it, he lets the outside reveal what really was going on inside. And we're going to see what happens to a man's life that doesn't take control of what's going on inside. He's so jealous of this young whippersnapper that has arrived on the scene that he, he cannot have a, he, in fact, he never has a night of peace again. He's so consumed with jealousy, he can't even have one good night's sleep. You know, I've seen this happen in the pastorate. I've seen, oh, I've seen it over and over again. It's shameful, but it happens. You know, sometimes I, I've seen where, you know, maybe a, a lead or senior pastor will, will hire new staff and maybe it's a, a youth pastor or an associate pastor and they're young and they're vibrant and, and they just are really good at connecting with people and, and they're a good speaker. And, and I've seen it happen where a pastor starts getting a little jealous. Like he seems to be getting a lot of attention and I've been here the longest. Why is he getting so much attention? And before long, I've seen it happen where pastors, you know, will just maybe plant seeds of doubt and before long they're able to move them along. How shameful. Because jealousy, insecurity becomes a stronghold. Let me tell you, Saul would have been willing to murder David if he could have done it himself. Nothing would have pleased the king more than to see David killed in a battle. Nothing would have pleased Saul more than to see David um, David's demise in the eyes of the Hebrew people. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Maybe you've felt that someone has that for you. Maybe you, you have a colleague at work and they, just, they have their eye on your job and they, oh, they would love to see you mess up. 
just so they could step in and have your job. So Saul comes up with his idea. I've got to somehow control this very popular guy, David. I know what I'm going to do. You can read it right there in the text. He says, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I have a daughter that's so beautiful and intelligent. I am going to offer my daughter to David. It's his oldest daughter. And his plan is that she will become a pawn. And so Saul makes a suggestion. Here's my oldest daughter, David. She's, she's beautiful. She's intelligent. She's royalty, and you can be part of the royal family. And while most people would have jumped at the opportunity, David, David, in his humility, says, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to marry the daughter of the king. I mean, who is my family that we would be given this kind of blessing? I, I, I can't do that. And so Saul marries off that daughter. But let me tell you, Saul's not finished playing the chess game yet. He's ready to make his next move. He wants to put David in checkmate. And so he's got a younger daughter. And he finds out that his younger daughter is actually in love with David. And let me tell you, it puts a grin on Saul's face. Oh, she does? And he begins to already scheme. And how will this happen? And what will I need to do? And he goes to David again. And he says, my daughter, Michael, she loves you. I'd love to give her hand to you in marriage. And David says, I'm not, I'm not worthy. It is no trivial thing to be the son-in-law of the king. That's what he says. It's not a trivial thing. Not worthy. And so Saul says, you know what? You want to prove yourself to be worthy? He said, I'll tell you what. Go kill a hundred of Israel's enemies and bring back, gross, I think, but bring back a hundred foreskins to prove that you did it. I'm sure Saul's thinking, oh, there's no way. There's no way he's going to be able to take down a hundred men. Surely he'll get wounded somewhere along the line. And what David does, he doesn't kill a hundred enemies of Israel. The Bible says he had, he killed 200 and he comes back with a, a, a sack of 200 foreskins. You know, sometimes this period of history, we, we glamorize it and we romanticize it and we santice, you know, uh, uh, santicize, santicize, is that word? S sanitize, thank you. I was just missing a syllable. Sanitize it. We think it's always so nice. But you can imagine him just plopping that down in front of the king. David marries the king's daughter. And it seems like everything that David puts his hand to turns to gold. He's got the Midas touch. It all is going so well. And the Bible says his reputation grew and it grew among the people. It's like he, he becomes a rock star. He's like a, a Hollywood celebrity. Everybody wants to be around David. Everybody, if you can get a glimpse of David, it's been a good day. Well, you can only imagine how that is burning within Saul. He doesn't like it. And it becomes like a cancer. 
and it just eats away at him. In fact, in the very next chapter, Saul calls a board meeting. And at this board meeting, he puts a death warrant out against a son-in-law. The one that's married his daughter, he's put a death warrant out. Now, at this board meeting, when you read through the passage of Scripture there, we don't have time this morning, but when you read through it, Jonathan, his oldest son, is actually at the board meeting. Now, if you remember the story back when David killed Goliath and Jonathan and David met, their hearts were knitted together, souls were knitted together, and uh, they made a covenant toward each other to look after each other. They became best friends. So Jonathan is not only David's brother-in-law, but he's actually his very best friend. And so as soon as the board meeting is over, he runs to David and says, David, you got to get out of here. You got to go into hiding. My dad has gone crazy. He wants to kill you. You go into hiding. I'll talk to my dad. And when I settle him down, I'll come back and I'll talk to you. And so Jonathan comes back and says, dad, what's wrong with you? You've become a crazy man. Dad, dad. David has proven himself to you as a loyal subject of yours. He's a man full of integrity. Like, he's never tried to hurt you, Dad. Why would you do this to him? Why would you try to get, um, shed innocent blood? He loves you, Dad. And Jonathan is reasoning with his father until finally Saul gets it. He goes, you're right. You're right. You're right. Bring David back into my presence. And so Jonathan goes uh, back to David and says, okay, everything's calmed down. You can come back. We're watching a, a man who started so well, Saul. He started so well. But now he's become a madman. He's, he's become manic depressive. He, he, he's become a schizophrenic. I mean, I would be scared to death to be even one of his children can you imagine bringing him to a teacher-parent conference? Yeah, whoa, is right. During this time of history, war was very common. Long bouts of peace was not that common, like what we get to enjoy here. And, and once again, Israel is, if you read the text, I encourage you to read the next couple of chapters here. But... Israel is facing their enemy again, and it's the Philistines. The Philistines weren't going to give up that easy just because they lost one giant. In fact, in over chapter 19, I think it's in verse 8, it says, But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the harp. And Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made a good escape. Now, David has been winning battle after battle after battle for Saul. I mean, this is a time of war, and David continues to win these battles, and he comes back home. His own father-in-law throws a spear strong enough that it actually sticks in the wall. He wasn't planning on having any little flesh wound. He meant business. And then David says, David flees. Now here's what's very interesting. As David's fleeing, you can only imagine, you'd be shaken. 
I mean, you would be shaken if someone just tried to kill you and you're making your way home and maybe you're thinking, okay, probably Michael has supper already. I can't eat supper. All I want to do, all I want to do is soak in the hot tub, get the stress out and go to bed early. But that's not what happens. He makes his way home. His wife says, you've got to get out of here. I just got the news. Dad's got this house surrounded. You have 24 hours. And he goes on the run. David has done everything he possibly can to prove to his father-in-law, I'm a loyal subject of yours. And yet, attempt number three on his life. This is the third time he's tried to kill David. At this particular time is when I would start having serious conversations with God. Lord, you remember me? You remember when that old guy, Samuel, came to our house and anointed me as the next king? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to let you know I'm willing to relinquish the rights to the throne. In fact, I'm fine not to be the king. I really like doing the family business of looking after the sheep. Let someone else have this pleasure. You ever question God when things are happening in your life that seems when your life is falling apart? God, um, remember me? <laughs> I remember when I made the decision to follow you and now look at my life. It's falling apart. <laughs> I kind of liked it back before. I, I think we can identify with David. What it's like when your life seems to be falling apart around you. And David gets home and his wife says, 24 hours. So listen, what I've done is I packed your lunch and, and I put the bed sheets out the back window and you can go down the hallway and you can escape. And before David can breathe another breath, he's on the run of his life. David, David, the anointed king is one breath away from taking his last breath. How quickly everything is turned upside down. And by the way, David becomes a fugitive for years. This is not a bad day. It's not a bad month. It's not a bad year. It's years. That David is on the run for his life. Yet he's supposed to be the anointed king. He's the one that Saul, I mean Samuel, anointed and told him God's favor is on you and you will be the next king. I think what I'm discovering here is that the world needs more than just gifted men and women who are outwardly empowered, but broken men and women who are inwardly transformed. I think that is the key to why God has David on the run of his life. And we find that he's living actually in caves. Caves become his castle. Pits become his palaces. By earthly measure, he was a shattered man. By heaven's measure, he was a broken one. And David allowed these events to transform him, but not to let him get bitter. Yeah, there were times, you can read it through that, where David actually loses focus. He, he sees how big his enemy is. He forgets actually how, how big God is. In fact, he writes about it. I, I wrote it down here in Psalm, 
Psalm 57, listen, this is when David's hiding in a cave. He, it's recorded for us. He says in Psalm 57, I run to you for dear life. I'm hiding out under your wings under the, until the hurricane blows over. He says, I find myself in a pride of lions who are wild for a taste of human flesh. Their teeth are lances and arrows. Their tongues are sharp daggers. They booby trapped my path. I thought I was dead and done for. They dug a man trap to catch me and fell in headlong themselves. David, on the run of his life, he's recording it like, like, Lord, <laughs> they're out to get me. And David talks about that. Let me tell you, you'll never, ever know. I will never, ever know that Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. David is in the wilderness. He's part of the royal family. He's, he's married the daughter of the king. He's the next anointed king. I don't get it. And he's on the run of his life. That's when the big questions start happening. God, what are you doing? We sang a song earlier, says your love never fails, it never runs out. At this particular time, you start wondering, I think God's love has run out actually. Maybe not for other people, but for some reason it seems like it has run out on me. I wanna tell you, I've said it before. You can have confidence that God is always working behind the scenes of your life. Always, not most of the time, not 99%. God is always at work. And sometimes the things that happen are so unexplainable, we don't get it, and we begin to question God. I thought you loved me, and look at this mess that's falling around me. But we'll never know that Jesus is all we need until he's all we have. You feel yourself maybe in the wilderness this morning? Do you feel like you're just sinking in sand? Do you feel so thirsty and dry? Do you feel like your, your heart is just heavy with life problems? Jesus' arms are open wide and that's where you find the refuge. It's in Jesus. It really is in Jesus. He is your refuge. And when you seem to be running for your life, run to him, because he's your refuge, he's your tower of strength. God's working. And in this story, we're gonna discover that God takes a few years to get David to the place where he'll be ready to be king. And sometimes God is working on us so we are ready for the next thing that he has in store for us. So don't give up on God. Run into his arms for the strength and the refuge that you need this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have gone pretty quickly through this passage of Scripture and 
Lord, I'm so thankful that every time we open up the word, we're reminded of what we have in Christ. Lord, we study a man like David who we're so intrigued by his life. We're fascinated by it. And we so easily identify with him. Just the ups and downs of life, the roller coaster ride. Lord, you certainly have never promised that life was going to be smooth. In fact, you've actually told us there will be troubles coming your way. There will be troubles coming your way. But Lord, we can have confidence. We actually can have confidence that you're in control, you're at work, you're working behind the scenes of our life, even though it makes no sense to us. But Lord, you are building and preparing and shaping and molding us to be ready for what you have for us. And it is true, Lord, until we realize that Jesus is really until everything is gone and realize that Jesus is all we have, that's when we really understand that's all we need, actually, is Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.